I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How's it going? Oh, it's going all right. It's going all right. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea where we are in the calendar at this point. We're we're doing one of our marathon recording days where we're recording a bunch of episodes that will be released in the future. And I think, is this our season finale? This is. We are, we are currently on the day before Thanksgiving. So Aww. even though we're recording this in October, happy day before Thanksgiving. And yes, this is the season three finale. Um, like the previous seasons, obviously, if we're on season three, this is not the end. However, we will be taking a several week break to kind of recuperate, figure out what the heck we're going to do in the next season and kind of plan from there. I know we're probably going to end up doing February flops again because, well, there are just too many shows to not talk about. And we like talking about those shows. And so why not? (laughs) But until we figure out what the heck we're going to do in season four, today we're going to be talking about Follies. With music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by James Goldman. Follies opened on April 4th, 1971 at the Winter Garden Theater and played 522 performances before closing on July 1st, 1972. Follies was directed by Harold Prince and Michael Bennett. The choreography was by Michael Bennett and the music direction was by Harold Hastings. The original Broadway cast included Gene Nelson as Buddy Plummer, Dorothy Collins as Sally Durant Plummer, John McMartin as Benjamin Stone, Alexis Smith as Phyllis Rogers Stone, Yvonne DiCarlo as Carlotta Campion, and Arnold Moss as Dimitri Weissman. Follies was nominated for 11 Tony Awards and won seven, including Best Leading Actress for Alexis Smith, Best Score, Best Direction, uh, Choreography, Scenic Costume, and Lighting Design. Follies opens in 1971, On the soon-to-be-demolished stage of the Weissman Theater, a reunion is being held to honor Weissman's Follies, a variety-style show that performed every year between the two world wars, complete with beautiful showgirls. The once-decadent theater is a mere shell of its former glory. As the ghosts of young showgirls slowly drift through the theater, a major domo enters with his entourage of waiters and waitresses. They pass through the spectral showgirls without seeing them. Former Weissman showgirl Sally Durant Plummer, blonde, petite, sweet-faced, and at 49, still remarkably like the girl she was 30 years ago, is the first guest to arrive and her ghostly, youthful counterpart moves towards her. Phyllis Rogers Stone, a stylish and elegant woman, arrives with her husband, Ben, a renowned philanthropist and politician. As their younger counterparts approach them, Phyllis comments to Ben about their past. He feigns a lack of interest. There is an underlying tension in their relationship. As more guests arrive, Sally's husband, Buddy, enters. He is a salesman in his early 50s, appealing and lively, whose smile covers inner disappointment. Finally, 
Dimitri Weissman enters to greet his guests. Roscoe, the old master of ceremonies, introduces the former showgirls. Former Weissman performers at the reunion include Max and Stella Deems, who lost their radio jobs and became store owners in Miami. Solange Lafitte, a coquette who is vibrant and flirtatious even at 66. Hattie Walker, who has outlived five younger husbands. Vincent and Vanessa, former dancers who now own an Arthur Murray franchise. Heidi Schiller, for whom Franz Lehar may have once wrote a waltz. And Carlotta Campione, a film star who has embraced life and benefited from every experience. As the guests reminisce, the stories of Ben, Phyllis, Buddy, and Sally unfold. Phyllis and Sally were roommates while in the Follies, and Ben and Buddy were best friends at school in New York. When Sally sees Ben, her former lover, she greets him self-consciously. Buddy and Phyllis join their spouses, and the foursome reminisces about the old days of their courtship and the theater. Their memories vividly come to life in the apparitions of their younger counterparts. Each of the four is shaken at the realization of how life has changed them. Elsewhere, Willie Wheeler cartwheels for a photographer. Emily and Theodore Whitman, ex-vaudevillians in their 70s, perform an old routine. Solange proves that she is still fashionable at what she claims is 66, and Hattie Walker performs her old show-stopping number. Buddy warns Phyllis that Sally is still in love with Ben, and she is shaken by how the past threatens to repeat itself. Sally is awed by Ben's apparently glamorous life, but Ben wonders if he made the right choices and considers how things might have been. Sally tells Ben how her days have been spent with Buddy, trying to convince him and herself. However, Sally is still in love with Ben, even though their affair ended badly when Ben decided to marry Phyllis. She shakes loose from the memory and begins to dance with Ben, who is touched by the memory of the Sally he once cast aside. Phyllis interrupts this tender moment and has a harsh encounter with Sally. Before Phyllis has a chance to really let loose, they are both called on to participate in another performance. Stella Deems and the ex-Corines line up to perform an old number as they are mirrored by their younger selves. Afterwards, Phyllis and Ben angrily discuss their lives and relationship, which has become numb and emotionless. Sally is bitter and has never been happy with Buddy, Although he has always adored her, she accuses him of having an affair while he is on the road, and he admits he has a steady girlfriend, Margie, in another town, but always returns home. Carlotta amuses a throng of admirers with a tale of how her dramatic solo was cut from the Follies, because the audience found it humorous, transforming it as she sings it into a toast to her own hard-won survival. Ben confides to Sally that his life is empty. She yearns for him to hold her, but young Sally slips between them and the three move together. Ben, caught in the passion of memories, kisses Sally as Buddy watches from the shadows. Sally thinks this is a sign that the two will finally get married, and Ben is about to protest until Sally interrupts him with a kiss and runs off to gather her things, thinking that the two will leave together. Buddy leaves the shadows furious and fantasizes about the girl he should have married, Margie, who loves him and makes him feel like a somebody. 
but bitterly concludes he does not love her back. He tells Sally that he's done, but she is lost in a fantasy world and tells him that Ben has asked her to marry him. Buddy tells her she must be either crazy or drunk, but he's already supported Sally through rehab clinics and mental hospitals and cannot take any more. Ben drunkenly propositions Carlotta, with whom he once had a fling, but she has a young lover and coolly turns him down. Heidi Schiller, joined by her younger counterpart, performs One More Kiss, her aged voice a stark contrast to the sparkling coloratura of her younger self. Phyllis kisses a waiter and confesses to him that she had always wanted a son. She then tells Ben that their marriage can't continue the way it has been. Ben replies by saying that he wants a divorce, and Phyllis assumes the request is due to his love for Sally. Ben denies this, but still wants Phyllis out. Angry and hurt, Phyllis considers whether to grant his request. Phyllis begins questioning her younger self, who worked so hard to become the society woman that Ben needed. Ben yells at his younger self for not appreciating all the work that Phyllis did. Both young and old buddy enter to confront the Bens about how they stole Sally. Sally and her younger self enter, and Ben firmly tells Sally that he never loved her. All the voices begin speaking and yelling at each other. Suddenly, at the peak of madness and confusion, the couples are engulfed by their follies, which transform the rundown theater into a fantastical love land an extravaganza even more grand and opulent than the gaudiest Weissman confection, the place where lovers are always young and beautiful and everyone lives only for love. Sally, Phyllis, Ben, and Buddy show their real and emotional lives in a sort of group nervous breakdown. The following scene is a series of musical numbers performed by the principal characters, each exploring their biggest desires. The two younger couples sing in counterpoint of their hopes of the future. Buddy then appears, dressed in plaid baggy pants, a garish jacket, and a shiny derby hat, and performs a high-energy vaudeville routine depicting how he is caught between his love for Sally and Margie's love for him. Sally appears next, dressed as a torch singer, singing of her passion for Ben from the past and her obsession with him now. In a jazzy dance number accompanied by a squadron of chorus boys, Phyllis reflects on the two sides of her personality, one naive and passionate and the other jaded and sophisticated, and her desire to combine them. Resplendent in top hat and tails, Ben begins to offer his devil-may-care philosophy, but stumbles and anxiously calls to the conductor for the lyrics as he frantically tries to keep going. Ben becomes frenzied, while the dancing ensemble continues as if nothing was wrong. Amidst a deafening discord, Ben screams at all the figures from his past and collapses as he cries out for Phyllis. Loveland has dissolved back into the crumbling and half-demolished theater, and the sun is rising. Ben admits to Phyllis his admiration for her, and Phyllis shushes him and helps Ben regain his dignity before they leave. After exiting, Buddy escorts the distraught Sally back to their hotel with the promise to work things out later. Their ghostly younger selves appear, watching them go. 
the younger Ben and Buddy softly call to their girls upstairs. So this is one of those shows that I wanted to put on the list because it's a show that I particularly love. I, I, I do really genuinely love this show and we'll talk more about why in a couple minutes here, but you made the completely appropriate observation that this show is the mother of all shows written for theater people. A show for theater people in my mind has always been a show that is very highly thought about for one reason or another among people who perform in and produce musical theater. Um, A Little Night Music is another show that I feel like was written for theater people. These shows sometimes can be commercial successes. Sometimes they're not. They have a really strong following amongst people who want to produce and perform these shows, but are not when you do an audience survey for Joe Schmo Theater that, you know, mama in, you know, who has season tickets for row F and brings her, you know, her aunt and her two kids to every first Sunday matinee are going to say, oh, no, 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 you must produce Follies. It's ultimately comes down to this concept of a show that you almost have to be inside to know about and appreciate. But that's, even that still just feels weird to say. I think I know, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, anyone can appreciate, uh, appreciate, anyone can appreciate this show. Anyone can appreciate this show for this show to be on your radar in order to appreciate it. I think you have to be in the theater because it's not getting produced generally because it's a really difficult sell because it's, it's a show about a theater and about the various people from those theaters past. And that leads to a really great story and some truly amazing songs. But fundamentally the topic is one that is probably just not something that people would think would be interesting, generally speaking. Yeah. And I will agree. There is some absolutely brilliant music in this show you and I have gone back and forth. This probably is the vessel that is Follies is probably the one show of Stephen Sondheim that contains the most good. If we want to put just like that horrible, horrible non-descriptive moniker on it, music of Stephen Sondheim. It is from beginning to end incredibly high quality, very stunning, very beautiful, very exceptional music. There aren't really any clunkers in this show. I don't necessarily want to argue that this is his best show. And to be fair, I don't know what the answer to what his best show is, but I think this is probably the most artistically beautiful of his shows. Yeah. Like you, I don't know if this is his best show and I don't know what his best show is. This show pound for pound contains more good songs than any other show that he wrote. Not to say that other Sondheim shows don't have good songs in them, but damn near every song in this show is a phenomenal song. And because of how the show is structured being 
like a quasi folly that plays out in front of our eyes as all these returners, uh, all these performers return to the theater to relive their past contains a lot of songs because each one of them and their act gets a song to go with it. Mm -hmm. It's funny. You talk about the structure of this show and it, to me, this is, I live for kind of like the trivia of theater. And so John's fun trivia fact for follies is that this show has been revised approximately 250,000 times. Hyperbolic, yes, but there's actually a fascinating quote from author Ted Chapin, who ended up writing a book about this show that he says, and I'm paraphrasing, Follies is rarely performed twice exactly in the same version. It turns out the author, James Goldman, was constantly revising the book for this show, and Sondheim himself would, as productions would go on, he would we would they would omit this song and they would add a different song here and they change this order sometimes mm-hmm. it was a one act sometimes it was a two act show and so there are so many differences every time this show was put up whether it be regionally in a major metropolitan center in london in new york wherever no two productions were the same and actually when you go to rent this show for amateur rights now from music theater international you don't even get the original version anymore they offer only up the 2012 la revival as the only version you can uh, rent which is its own branch off of the 2011 broadway revival that had bernadette peters so this show, just as intricate as it can be, has always been intricate in its own genesis as well, because it just, no two versions are alike. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's maybe a little frustrating now from a perspective of if you want to do this show and maybe one of the songs you really like is no longer in the show, but it makes sense that this show would be tailored for who you're doing it with, because it's all about the performers who are coming back to the folly. So if you don't have someone who fits the bill for one of those songs, don't make them do it, replace it, do something else. Like it makes perfect sense because yeah, a lot of the songs are really integral to the storytelling, but a lot of the songs are also just acts. They're also just numbers. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that balance and the way Sondheim balances that is, is really well done in this show. In our rundown notes, actually connected to that, one of the things that you talked about that I want to hear you talk about more is about your thoughts on the musical painting and how Sondheim is adept at kind of a visual representation in an auditory musical art form. Yeah. So he is. He's very adept at uh, uh, visually painting in an auditory musical art form. No, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I am a little bit unique in the way I hear these songs. But when I listen to this show, I see in my mind's eye exactly what it has to look like on stage. Just listening to the music, I can picture exactly who the people are, where they are, what the set is like, what they're doing, who they're interacting with. I mean, it's just part of the brilliance of his composition and his writing, particularly in this show, I think more than any other of his shows, is that 
the pictures are so clear in the songs that it it's almost mind-boggling to me that anyone could could have a difficult time staging this piece because he's telling you everything you need to know in the songs in terms of where the people are both physically and emotionally and what they're going through and what they have to do in terms of the drama of the story. And this is actually something that isn't often talked about with Stephen Sondheim, but in my opinion is actually one of the most important things that he offers as a lyricist and composer in all of his Broadway music, really all of his music in general, in, is the fact that he has the ability to take this art form and expand it to encompass and reinforce and strengthen every aspect of the theater genre. And not a lot of people can do that. I mean, you can just go and watch any, probably like 95% of the musicals out there, the music is of better or worse quality, is, you know, trying to stay away from the whole concept of good or bad, but the music ends up being one part of that show. With Sondheim, that music intertwines with the other parts of the show, and he ends up creating this complete work of musical theater, capital M, capital T, that is unique and ultimately is going to be the pedestal on which we put Sondheim in the future because so few do it well when someone does it well like this you have to take notice yeah and 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 i think it's not just a follies trait that he does this in he does it in all of his shows but i think it is particularly strong in follies and part of that is again because of the nature of the piece it is it is frequently an individual or two individuals, uh, sometimes four, but generally smaller groups of people on stage performing an act or reliving a memory. And the, the text and the music are just so tied together. You can see exactly how all the characters are, are either existing and inhabiting the stage or playing with each other. Uh, it's, just, it's just so good. Now, normally we kind of leave this as kind of a closing thought, but I want to talk about the recordings for this show. So when they originally recorded this in 1971, they ended up truncating a good portion of the original Broadway cast recording to make it fit on a single LP. And as a consequence, a lot of these songs have been cut and excerpted and just are not, in my opinion, the absolute best representation of this show. Luckily, we have several other recordings of this show, including a 1985 New York Phil recording with Paul Gemignani conducting that is almost, but not quite, a note-for-note recording of the show as it existed at that time. And then we have an additional 2011 recording with Bernadette Peters and Elaine Page, which, while not as free as the 1985 recording, is at least a little bit more representative of the total concept of what's on the page. Now, I know you and I differ here. I tend to prefer the New York Phil recording because it is so complete. 
but you you seemed at least and correct me if i'm wrong you seem to kind of prefer the original broadway cast why is that so first let me start by saying i think the new york phil recording is great that is a phenomenal cast uh among the people on that cast are are barbara cook who is one of my favorites uh it's it is a great recording and as you point out it gives you almost the entirety of the show which is a valuable thing however i don't necessarily need to hear every minute of music to be able to understand what the show is and so the original broadway cast recording i don't want to go so far as to say it's a highlights recording because it's not but it doesn't include you know transitional things it doesn't include smaller numbers it's it's sort of the big musical moments of the show and if you listen to it you just get hit after hit after hit after hit after hit i mean there's a stretch in there on that original broadway recording where you get i'm still here followed by too many mornings followed by the right girl followed by one more kiss followed by could i leave you followed by you're gonna love tomorrow followed by the god why don't you love me blues and then losing my mind with nothing else in between it and if you don't know each of the songs you need to go and listen to the original broadway cast recording because each of those songs could make a pretty strong argument for the best song that sondheim ever wrote i mean that it's just such good music and it comes at you all right in a row without anything to interrupt that it i mean for me it is almost overwhelming to experience the power of all these songs back to back to back to back to back to back No, and I'm right there with you. And I think there's definitely a place for the original Broadway cast recording with this show. But just, and and I'm not going to read the complete cast list, but that 1985 Lincoln Center recording with the New York Phil included Mandy Patinkin as Buddy Plummer, Barbara Cook as Sally Durant Plummer, uh, George Hearn as Benjamin Stone, Liz Calloway as Young Sally, Carol Burnett as Carlotta Campione. Elaine Stritch as Hattie Walker. Betty Comden as Emily Whitman. Adolph Green as Theodore Whitman. I mean, this is like, this is an all-star recording. And the fact that we're getting this all-star recording with as much of the music as Sondheim actually wrote, I that's what I appreciate about that recording. You are right. There is a power and a gravitas in the original Broadway cast that is chilling. It is probably, I mean, whether you enjoy the cut down songs and the omissions and this and that, it is still one of the top 10 Broadway cast recordings that I have ever heard. It is amazing. It is stunning. It is beautiful. And I love it. I just wish that they had put more of Follies into that recording because I think it could have made it even so much more powerful. I hear what you're saying. I think that's fair. I would love to hear more of the kind of secondary character songs from the original cast. Uh, You know, some of the characters you just listed in the 85 recording, those secondary characters are phenomenal. I can't even begin to try to argue with you. I like Gene Nelson's buddy more than I like um, Mandy Patinkin's buddy. And And that's fair. And Mandy Patinkin is a 
take it or leave it type of performer people well, i like- i like mandy patinkin I, I i'm not a mandy hater i just like gene nelson's buddy more i think it's a, okay a, a better performance of that character and george hearn is great as benjamin stone there is something really i don't want to say peculiar because that sounds negative but there's something so distinctive about john mcmartin's benjamin stone in the original that i i don't know i just George Hearn singing Benjamin Stone kind of sounds like George Hearn. John McMartin sounds like a character. It sounds more like Benjamin Stone to me. The ladies are phenomenal. I I can't argue. And look, it's George Hearn and Mandy Patinkin. That 85 cast is amazing. If you decide you're going to listen to it, you are doing a good thing. I think the original Broadway cast is also really, really good. So you brought it up in in your little rant there. And your your loving rant there, and I'm gonna, um, you know what? I I debated whether I was gonna do this or not, but you know what? What the hell is the season finale? This show may contain the best song that Sondheim wrote. What is the best song that Sondheim wrote? Oh my god! Okay, so and you 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 are asking generically, like across all of his works, not just this show, correct? Okay, let's make it. Let's make it a two-part question. What is the best song from this show? And is that song also the best song that Sondheim has written? Okay. Now, hold on. I got to go pull up the recording just to make sure my brain isn't missing any songs. I don't think it is. All right. So I'm going to narrow it down to two for this show and let you push me in a direction because they're all so good. I can't. I think the best song in Follies either has to be I'm Still Here or Losing My Mind. Okay. I cannot argue with either one of those choices. I th- I'm Still Here is just such an anthem that has had such a life outside of Follies. I think that is probably the winner for best song from Follies, even though Buddy's Eyes is so wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm making you choose between your favorite kids. Yeah, it kind of feels that way, but I'm I'm gonna I'm going to right now in this moment say that I'm still here is the best song from Follies. Okay, then part two is yeah. I'm still here the best song that Sondheim has written. All right, so I know some of the other contenders that you want to mention are songs like. Uh, gun song from Assassin's No. Uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> um, you you know what? Someday we're gonna get into Assassins because I have a deep love for that show, and I know you don't, and that will be a glorious discussion. It, it's I, I I just don't like the subject material. I I I like the music mostly. Gun song is great. I really like Gun song. Gun song is probably the best song from Assassins. Okay, so let's see. Let's let's consider uh, a little night music. What do you think the best song in there is? See, that's tough because I mean, I have a special affinity for "Send in the Clowns." It's so ubiquitous that I feel like maybe it's a cop out. I also love the waltzes, and so I don't know if that counts as a consequence. Yeah, I mean, I think the best musical moment is that Act One finale, Weekend in the Country. 
but that's not really a song that's a scene right and and so I will fully admit that this question is in in addition to be completely and totally loaded because there isn't going to be necessarily a right answer today is that some of Sondheim's work is songs, but he also writes scenes and he writes musical scenes. So those should those be considered as songs, even though they're, you know, connect there, there's no real beginning or end to them because they flow out of a song and into another song. I mean, it would be, you would be hard pressed for certain sections of like, say for example, Sweeney Todd. There is some beautiful music in there that can be considered transition music. And does that count? Does it not count? So I have not made your life easy. Let's, let's put no, it that okay. way. So, so I'm going to make the arbitrary decision now in this completely pointless conversation that we are having that we are not going to discuss scenes. They've got to be standalone songs with a start and a finish. Okay. That, okay. that may be obscured in the context of the actual musical, but like it's got to have a start and a finish. So like if we're going to look at Sweeney, I'm going to say the best song in Sweeney is A Little Priest. I'm just going to say it. I don't care for Joanna. Fight me. Um, so 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 you're not going to die on the hill of by the sea really <laughs> john i'm so disappointed i thought you were going to say by the sea by the sea definitively is the best song that stephen sondheim ever wrote <laughs> <laughs> end of discussion oh um, and if you've listened to our episode on sweeney todd you'll understand this joke that now i realize is probably a horrible in joke but if you go listen to that episode, you'll be in on the joke and it's great. So let's move listen, on. Listen, if you've made it to season three, episode 20, you've listened to our episode on uh, uh, Sweeney Todd. Okay. That's so, fair. okay. Look, I know the song that you want me to get to is Children Will Listen from Into the Woods. What, that, is one, that is one of my, that would be one of my finalists for lack of a better term. I, I, I would say also on the list of, greatest Stephen Sondheim songs is probably move on from Sunday in the park with George. That's another one. Yes. And I would say children will listen, move on. And um, I'm still here. Probably are going to filter out to be top three Stephen Sondheim songs. I would, I would argue you could make, I, I would argue I could make an argument for, because that's a weird sentence, um, another hundred people from company. Oh, okay. Interesting. Not um, the being alive. Yep, being alive. That's the one. Now, see, being alive for me is, it's Joanna. Like it is, it is. Interesting. It is very okay, so we well do- constructed, but it is it is meant to evoke a certain emotional output. It is meant to evoke a certain feeling. Being alive can be an incredibly sincere and moving song in the right hands. However, in the wrong hands, it is forced and it is artificial. And I oh, feel like if you're not wrong, <laughs> but if we're going to make an honest, sincere discussion about what Stephen Sondheim's, excuse me, what Stephen Sondheim's greatest songs are, 
They need to be songs that have the ability to stand on their own no matter who is performing them. And being alive as a consequence is excluded from that because I feel like you have to be an incredibly talented actor and singer in sync to make being alive work. And if not, it is not a very good song. It is a great song at times because of the performance, but is never a good song despite the performance. That is a bold way to frame looking at this. And for that reason, I'm going to kick out Children Will Listen. Because I don't think that stands on its own if you aren't a brilliant singer, actor, performer. Okay. You know what? If, if I'm going to kick out Being Alive, a, a song that you weren't actually going to include on the list, I, I just forget you... about Company. That's a good song. <laughs> That's a good song. I just but, forget about that show. I just, I, I sincerely do not believe that there is a bad recording of another hundred people out there. I feel like the okay. song itself is constructed well enough to withstand anything that anyone does to it. Um, move On is the same... If Bernadette Peters can make it sound good, <laughs> then it is bulletproof. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Fine. <laughs> and the the third one I would the third one I would choose to just kind of round out this top five is is a deep cut. Take me to the world from Evening Primrose, which is a song nobody really knows because evening oh so evening primrose was a tiny little one act chamber musical that stephen sondheim wrote in 1966 for television um as far as i've been able to figure out because i want to do this show so badly it's not available for rental there's just no way to legally perform the show i have never been able to find a video recording of this performance so it, it's a two-person show it's a man and a woman in and a department store and it's it's kind of the plot of mannequin hmm. the movie um hmm. only with music and better story beats um anthony perkins of psycho fame was the 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 person who originated the male role it's actually been made for lack of a better term famous there's a recording with neil patrick harris that was included on a disc that was from the early 2000s where they put evening primrose and the original version of the frogs on the same album um before the frogs then got recycled into a short-lived Broadway musical so that the frogs did end up going to Broadway for a little bit was not at the time meant to so on and so forth but that would be that would round out my top five as a potential for the best Sondheim song but all that being said as much as I've led you on and teased you and, and, and joked about this, this is also not a question that we can answer in 20 minutes on this podcast episode. 
No, 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 no. I'm going to answer the question. Okay. I'm going to answer. So we've narrowed it down. We've got uh, the song from Evening Primrose that I just listened to while you're describing it. And I think it's Uh, okay. Take me Uh, to the world. (laughs) Take me to the world. Um, We've got another uh, hundred people. I'm still here. We've got another hundred people. We've got move on. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that's right. We took out children will listen. And we we took out children will listen. Um, So, So, uh uh-huh. I think the best Stephen Sondheim song, standalone song, can be excerpted and sung by anyone of any ability and still create an emotional impact is I'm Still Here. Yeah, you're, you're so close. You're so close because that's the second best song he's ever written. Move on is the best song that Stephen uh, okay. Sondheim has ever written. I'll allow Move On. That's a great song. I don't know. I think you got to be able to get up and, and hit those tight harmonies, but whatever. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be. You could speak, I'm still here, and it would still be compelling. You're not wrong. Like, I, I'm, again, now I feel like I'm choosing between my favorite kids because you're <laughs> not wrong. And I'm sure there's someone out there right now that's just saying, okay, these Johns are full of shit. The hell are they talking about? It is very, very obvious that it's Merrily We Roll Along. (laughs) Just just the title song? That's it. The title song. Yeah, just the title song. It's Merrily We Roll Along. And that's the best song that Stephen Sondheim has ever written. And and they will not hear another word of it. But you know what? Everyone's entitled to their opinion, even the wrong ones. Okay, so that wonderful tangent aside, thank you for making it to the end of season three, for being here with us. We look forward to joining you soon in a few weeks uh, once we've you know, come up with a plan and, and made some recordings to bring you some delightful uh, new musical theater discussions. In the meantime, if you haven't heard Follies before. By the way, this show was about Stephen Sondheim's Follies. Uh, Oh! Yeah, you can listen to the fantastic 1985 New York Phil recording or the fantastic original Broadway cast recording. Both of them are spectacular and delightful in their own ways. And thank you so much. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.